Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Previously on the storyteller Violent Delights, the murder trial of Maxwell Garvey heard of his wrath when he realised his wife Sheila had fallen in love with the young man he'd handpicked as her lover. He told me that if I choose Brian, he would put a bullet through my eyes. And Sheila and Brian's police statements were read out, blaming each other for the murder. There had been a grab for the gun and a struggle, and he got shot. I heard our bedroom door closing and terrible thumping noises. I'm Isla Traquair, and this is the storyteller Violent Delights, a true story of love which began as a fairy tale but ended in a nightmare. From castles to a courtroom, this story rocked Scotland like no other. It's a crime so historic, only a few characters are alive to tell the tale. And I'm tracking them down for what might be the last chance to discover the truth behind the headlines and who killed Maxwell Garvey and why. November 26th, 1968. Three accused sat in the dock at the High Court in Aberdeen. Brian Tevendale, a handsome but slightly scruffy 22-year-old. Sheila Garvey, 33, a beautiful mother of three children. And fair-haired Alan Peters. The recently married motor mechanic was only 20 years old when he was catapulted into one of the most sensational trials in Scotland's history. But during all this salacious evidence, Alan's name was never mentioned. It was Sheila's statement to police, saying the blonde stranger was in her house on the night her husband was killed, that led police to his door on the other side of Scotland. Former police officer Stuart Cree, who later worked closely with the key detectives in the case, learned Alan was quick to confess to police his involvement on May the 14th, 1968. If you're uh, in a police station and you don't have any previous, w- n- uh, you know, workings with the police, some people come in, they're very blasé because they've been in custody many times and they know the score and they know what they're doing, but Peters didn't. There's just no doubt of that. And he was, if, from that point of view, more likely to be um, under pressure, you know, anxious, uh, uh, you know, gradually building up and I'm... Uh, being aware as he was of what had happened. Retired officer Ian Gordon confirmed there was no evidence found of Alan Peters being involved in the complex sexual relationships of the Garveys. Peters never came into this at all because he only came on the day to do the event because um, Tevendale, who um, worked with him as a motor mechanic, had quite a bit of power over this young lad and persuaded him to come and help him. Alan had a car and Brian didn't, and they'd often done homers together. But this was no ordinary homer. In his statement he'd given to police following his arrest, he hinted that he knew this. He brought it up at work a few weeks before. He just said he was wanting to get rid of the bloke, and would I come with him so that he could have transport? Well, on the night I picked him up at Mr Buster's house. We went straight from there to Stonehaven. No, we didn't. 
We went through Stonehaven, out the coast road, and we stopped at a little pub and had a drink in there. And then we carried on that road, we made our way to Lawrencekirk. We stopped in Lawrencekirk and had one drink there too. We went from there to West Cairnbeg and we parked the car on the road that runs along the back of the house. We went from there into the garage and Mrs Garvey let us into the house. Brian got the gun from the back of the door and we went through to the sitting room. We got a drink from Mrs Garvey and then she showed us to the room upstairs. We waited there until Mr Garvey came home and went to bed and when he was asleep his wife came through and told us. Then we went back through and Brian had a gun and he hit him on the back of the head with the bottom of the gun and then he shot him with the gun. Then we tied him up in a plastic ground sheet and we took him down to the car. Then Brian took his car to the airfield and I followed. We then took him to the place where we left him. I burned the ground sheet. I put some petrol on it and set fire to it. That's just more or less it. Alan's very matter-of-fact statement was in contrast to Sheila's claim that she'd been unaware of what was going on, as she recalled in her memoir. My most vivid recollection of that night is of kneeling outside the children's bedroom, gripping the door handle with all my strength. I was only wearing a short white nylon nightdress and Brian came over and put something around my shoulders. It had crossed my mind that the two had been given Matt's a good hiding because Brian had said once or twice that he deserved a good beating up for some of the things he had done to me. But gradually it began to dawn on me that something far more terrible must have happened, although it never occurred to me that Max had been shot. They left me sitting there alone in a chair in the sitting room. I heard a car start up and go into the night. I had no idea what had happened to the thing that they had bumped down the stairs. But I had asked Brian before he left if Max had suffered, and he said no. Alan claimed Sheila and Brian had disappeared for half an hour after Max's body was put in the car, and he'd been left alone in the living room until the lovers returned with coffee. He said he didn't know what they'd been doing while away, but they kissed each other goodbye before he and Brian drove off in separate cars, one containing the body of her murdered husband. Sheila was asked in cross-examination if the kiss had taken place, but she said she had no memory of it. Alan was questioned in more detail about his statement, claiming he hadn't realised getting rid of a bloke meant murder. His QC doctor, R. Taylor, asked him about the moments before the murder, when they were standing in the darkness in a bedroom, only steps away from the children's bedroom and a sleeping Maxwell Garvey. When you were standing there, did you ask him what was going on? He just told me to keep quiet. Did you know what was going on? No. Did he tell you before this what he wanted to do? No, not at all. You didn't know? No. How did you feel in the room with Brian Tevendale? I didn't know what was happening. I just felt kind of afraid for myself. Tell us what happened next. A short time after, we went into the room. I heard voices outside the room. About a quarter of an hour after that, Mrs Garvey came back into the room and said he's asleep. That's all she said. What happened next? We came out of the room and Brian said, follow me. We went across the landing and into another bedroom. In that bed, there was a man lying asleep on the bed. Did you know who that was? Not really. He was lying face down on the bed. What happened next? 
Brian went up to the right-hand side of the bed, close into the bed, and told me to stay. He struck the man several times on the back of the head. Then he picked up a pillow, threw it on top of his head, and shot him through the pillow. He put the muzzle on the top of the gun against the pillow and shot through the pillow. How many times? Just once. Where was Sheila Garvey? She was standing outside the room. After the murder, when did you next see Sheila Garvey? She was still outside. She was standing more or less in front of the door, but on the other side. One shot, one entry wound, but now a suggestion that Max was hit in the head. This is important, as Wheel here claims that it was Alan who delivered a blow before Max was shot. Retired detective Alistair Smith and his colleagues went to unusual lengths to test out various theories. The first was to establish whether Alan's claim that a pillow was used was consistent with Max's external wound and could explain why the bullet had not left his skull. It is suggested, but I had no evidence, and I don't think Dr McBain found any evidence either, of blows being inflicted upon the body. But there is a suggestion that that was the case, that he was beaten, if you like, with the bat of the .22 rifle, which is the one that they took from Maxwell's office and had belonged to Maxwell Garvey. We were interested in the appearance of a human being's flesh to such a, an injury from a rifle with a feather-filled pillow held in front of it. So we we wondered how we could possibly do this because you just can't get human bodies to, to volunteer to do something like this. So it, it was advised, if you get a flans pig, it looks exactly the same as the surface of a human body. And so it proved we went to the killing house in Aberdeen, got ourselves a pig, had it flensed and, and all of the hair and so on removed. We fired the, the actual tutu rifle with a, a, a bullet, a cartridge in it, and the bullet was recovered from the pig. It was also photographed to show the type of injury that would have happened, and it was remarkably similar. It's, it's quite interesting that one can duplicate the appearance of such an injury on a human being by using, of all things, a pig. Do you think the pillow, would that have slowed down the speed of the entry of the bullet? Oh, well, the feathers would, because the passing through a thick wad of feathers or cotton wool would slow it down quite considerably. So before it actually entered the skull, a lot of the uh, velocity had been removed from the bullet. An element as well that might have contributed to the bullet staying in his skull was his actual bone structure being quite thick. Is that correct? Well, it was it was quite thick. Uh, the bullet detached uh, quite a large piece of bone on its way in, and then there was some bone uh, had been uh, damaged, some of it removed actually, on the far side of the skull from the entry point. And uh, I, I'm not really uh, equipped to tell you, to tell you whether he had a thick skull or not. But I'd seen a large number in my experience. The gun had had to be retrieved from West Cairnbeg for these tests. Retired officer Ian Gordon said it was strange returning to pick up a murder weapon, which he'd previously manhandled for licensing. Obviously, when I renewed the firearm certificate, um, his firearm certificate, 
whilst I was at uh, Lawrence Kirk, um, I examined the, the, the gun cabinet and all the weapons to ensure that the serial numbers corresponded with his firearm certificate. What was it like for you as someone who'd gone there in your profession to go and check these firearms and assess the owner to then be returning to look for those firearms which had now, one of them, had become a murder weapon? Yeah, it, it certainly um, brought back memories when I was there, you know, of my time at Lawrence Kirk and my dealings with um, the Garvey family. And uh, I felt particularly sorry for the... Um, the Grieve, um, who, as I said, was a special constable, at, uh, in fact, he was actually a special sergeant at the time, who was a really nice man. And they were the whole uh, staff there, um, all the, the, the work hands had to um, work through this. Um, and uh, it, yes, it was an, an, an unpleasant going back there, uh, knowing the, uh, the background to the family and knowing the family as well. So much has been said about this place, this home, West Cairnbeg, that I think it's time I get in the car and head there. Now, I'm recording this during the time of COVID. It's very early in the morning. And also the property was sold out of the family a few years ago. So I'm just going to go there so I can see it for myself with my own eyes. So I've never actually driven past this property before and I'm actually surprised at how hilly it is. This area would have been slightly flatter. Here we go. West Cairnbeg, where the story began and ended. Now, the infamous sign that was at the bottom of the road has now been replaced with a proper street sign. You can actually drive up this road because it is not private. It's a private home and I am not going to go and disturb the owners, especially at this time in the morning. Hmm, there it is. West Cairnbeg. This is quite different to what it would have been at the time. Because instead of being surrounded by farm buildings, it's surrounded by a housing development. CCTV recording stored at the site. It's quite a substantial property. And I can actually see that window, the bedroom window, the bedroom of Sheila and Maxwell Garvey, where he was shot while asleep in the middle of the night. So I've just stopped the car along the road, but I'm really glad that I came down to see for myself because it was such a central part of this investigation. In fact, Alistair Smith and his team had to return with the rifle and a pillow to character test to see if indeed you could hear the gun being fired from the bedroom when you were out in the hallway. I sat out uh, in the room where Sheila was, it was alleged that she had been. We just barely heard uh, a sound of a blank 2 2 cartridge being fired through a pillow. So the, the masking was quite considerable. Do you think that noise, let's just say there was a singular thump, um, could that have been the noise of the bullet going through the pillow? Well, it could have been. I would suspect that the thumping may or may not have happened, but I don't know. 
Alistair Smith was called to give evidence on his findings, but ended up in hot water with the strict Lord Thompson. Uh, I was challenged when I came from the Identification Bureau branch uh, into the court. Uh, I was challenged that I was, had been delinquent and failing to turn up at 10 o'clock. So I had to explain to Lord Thompson, I was informed on Tuesday, this was a Thursday, I was informed by the Procurator Fiscal, Mr Nixon, that I should not turn up until 10.30 on the day of, the, of my calling. And here I was at 10.30. Lord Thompson smiled and he said, you're excused for that. A brief moment of lightness at his chastisement was closely followed by one of shock when D.I. Smith held in his hands a grim piece of evidence. On the third day of the trial, Crown Prosecution Number 14 was produced in court. It was an innocent-looking cardboard box, but inside it was the yellowing skull of my dead husband, the most macabre piece of evidence to go before the jury. As the medical expert prepared to lift the gruesome exhibit from the box to point out the bullet wounds, Mr Dowdo leaned over to me and said, don't look. Well, I think it was a shock to most people, uh, even his lordship. Uh, I don't think he had seen it beforehand. It, it was in a, a hat box. You can understand one of these large hat boxes would just take a skull quite neatly. Although it was shocking to see, it's a point of law to use the best possible evidence, and his skull was that. You would have very little understanding of the effect of a tutu bullet on the back of someone's skull if you hadn't seen it. The photographs were so distorted because of putrefaction, so it was possible to see the entry wound, of course, but it wasn't possible to see the detail of, exam of uh, uh, destruction that the bullet had caused as it entered the skull. And that was only possible, really, and it was critical in some ways to understanding why did this man die uh, to see the skull. I've seen all the photographs and understand why this was necessary. Perhaps the most striking visual is the X-ray. It looks fairly standard, a medical image we're not unfamiliar with, until you see the bullet lying at the base of the skull. As Alistair Smith concluded his grim evidence, he once again managed to lighten the sombre mood of the courtroom. Uh, one of the amusing things that happened at that particular time, I was called down to uh, show it to the jury. And... Uh, I, I, I took the, the skull, put it back in the box, and on the way past the defence, I, I placed the box in front and said, you'll be requiring that, and there was a titter around the cloud. <laughs> the jury had now heard and seen that it was the gunshot that had killed Max. Whether or not he'd received a blow to stun him first was undetermined. Alan's account of a pillow being used did at least match the physical evidence. I mentioned earlier about an accusation that Alan had struck the first blow. That came from Trudy Burse. Her previous demeanour in the witness box, which had been described as bold as brass, changed dramatically when she was asked about learning of Max, her former lover's death. Despite Brian later telling police it was Sheila who'd shot him and he'd just disposed of the body, he told his sister something quite different 
just hours after the murder. It was unusual for Brian to be up at that time. I asked what he'd been up to and what the clothes were in the kitchen for. He said it was nothing to do with me and to mind my own business. I sensed there was something wrong, but he was very quiet and would not speak. I kept on at him and I asked where Alan was. He said he'd gone to work. I got hold of his arm at the bottom of the stairs. Brian said, it's been done, it's over, or words to that effect. Max is dead. Trudy became overcome with emotion and Judge Lord Thompson had to intervene to get her to spell out what her brother had told her after a long silence. Brian told me that Alan struck Max with a steel bar and that Brian honestly believed him to be dead when he, Brian, shot him. He said Sheila told them when Max was asleep. Then they had gone through and what I said previously had happened. There was no evidence of a steel bar, but that didn't prevent Lionel Dykey's QC pressing Alan Peters about being more complicit than he claimed, and in particular, why he decided to stay when Brian picked up the rifle and loaded it while they were sitting in the lounge. wasn't sure whether I would get the same, that I would get shot or beaten up. This is the man of whom you walked in terror. Yes. At his request, and frightened, you pushed the still warm murdered body down the shaft. Yes, that's right. Whom you had been protecting for the best part of three months. Not protecting. But at least not betraying. No. You were frightened you might be murdered. Perhaps. He forced you, an innocent, terrified man, under the threat of violence, to push a murdered man down a hole in the ground. That's right. And you fed this warm, dead body down a hole like a worm. Yes. The court heard the disposal of the body hadn't been flawless. Despite Brian bringing a change of clothes for them both in a rucksack, he hadn't factored in the soft ground, and their car got stuck, forcing them to seek help and wake up a local farmer. Well, the farmer was actually, he, he got a knock on his door that night, um, and during the night, it was into sort of the early hours of the morning, and uh, saying that uh, they had uh, gone off the road there and they were stuck, and could he help them out? So um, the farmer did, he went and got his tractor, and he got a tow rope, and uh, he uh, pulled them out. And in fact, there were two people there at the time, which would have been... Uh, Brian Tevendale and uh, Peters. Retired officer Ian Gordon had to track down Alan Peters' car, which had been sold, and found more clues beyond the body having been in the boot. We obviously had to photograph and get the car, also Aberdeen City, um, through Inspector um, Smith, uh, examined the car forensically. Uh, we took all the pictures, um, and uh, one of the things it highlighted, because um, there was a, a mark on the front bumper and when he attached his rope around the bumper, which was these big chrome bumpers, which were a gap between the body and the, and the bumper and was easy enough to get a rope round and they pulled it and of course it was damaged 
um, there was in fact indentation of uh, what was consistent with a, a rope uh, going round there. The sale of the car was presumably an attempt by Alan to hide any evidence, but he didn't distance himself from the most obvious link to the murder, Brian Tevendale, as Lionel Dykey's QC pointed out during cross-examination. And this was the gentleman you selected to be best man at your wedding. I asked him before the 15th. You were married on July 26th, but by May 15th, you knew that the best man at your wedding was a brutal murderer. Yes. In the light of all the horror you have told us, why did you not cancel the invitation to the murdering gentleman to be your best man? I didn't want it to appear that I was trying to avoid him in any way. Alan's 18-year-old pregnant wife, Helen, gave evidence, claiming her quiet husband had changed in personality and seemed more on edge, although she did not know what had prompted it. She also said that if he found himself in a situation with a gun present, he would have been scared stiff. The court heard on their wedding day, Sheila had cooked a turkey and provided all the food for the small celebratory meal. However, in Sheila's original statement to police a month after the wedding, she claimed to not know Alan's surname, but knew the couple were friendly with Brian's sister and her husband. This lad, Alan, I, I don't know his last name, stayed with his wife in a caravan and they now stay in Fort Augustus. It was true that Sheila had not met Alan Peters prior to the murder. Her QC, Lionel Dykes, preempted the inference that her subsequent important role on their wedding day might have. It may be suggested that the reason why you befriended Alan Peters and perhaps his fiancée was that you were really trying to bribe him to keep his mouth shut with regard to the part you had played in your husband's death. If that suggestion was put to you, would there be any truth in it? None whatsoever. But when cross-examined and asked whether she had identified Alan Peters as being the weak link who might spill the beans, she said Brian had assured her he would stay silent. When I spoke to him about Alan Peters, Brian said he'd taken such a big part that night that he would never say anything. Alan didn't tell his bride what had happened to Max, who was still classed as a missing person at the time of the wedding. But the four other people round the table of their wedding meal knew Max was dead and his body had been dumped. They were best man Brian, Sheila Garvey, Trudy Burse and her husband, police constable Fred Burse. In the next episode of The Storyteller, Violent Delights, an unlikely person helps Sheila and Brian cover up the murder of Maxwell Garvey. Brian and myself took the mattress to Dancing Cairns Quarry in Aberdeen and burned it. And Trudy contradicts Sheila's version of events, claiming she was not an innocent bystander and had even joked about Max being bumped off. They used to joke about him. They had a habit of joking that he would have to go. This is the storyteller Violent Delights, written, produced and edited by me, Isla Traquair. There's more information and photos relating to the case on social media. If you've enjoyed this, then please rate and review on iTunes, as it really helps other people find this story. 
A huge thank you to Nick J. Tyler, who composed and performed all the music except the title track, which is Searchlight by Cathedral. And finally, a huge thank you to the voice actors, in particular Kate Dickey, who is the voice of Sheila.